Can you talk about how accessible it, meeting those cats were like in, in 79? What was that experience like? Talk about that. But that was incredible because, like I said to you before, like the 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 knowledge base wasn't here. You know what I mean? There were very few practitioners here who could actually play in that kind of style. You know, I mean, mm. there were people that dabbling on congas or, you know, dabbling on things like that. You know, classical percussion sometimes, but not with that sort of knowledge. So we wanted to to hear. You know, we were looking for that. How do you, you know, we want to sound like Raul, you know, we want to sound like Armando, we want to have that sound, you know. <laughs> so by me, Raul, and I mean, one of the first things Raul did as soon as he met us and, and he thought, well, these guys are really into this, you know, he said, let's go to my 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 hotel room and on a rubbish tin, on a little sort of paper tin, he started playing us all these rhythms and, and showing us all these patterns. And then the next day, I organized a, 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 a big jam session at my girlfriend's house at the time. And we just set up all these congas and it was close to the hotel. So we got Raul there and we just spent a whole day kind of learning songs and learning uh, rhythms from, you know, Cuba, Puerto Rico and all that sort of thing that Raul was really well versed in, you know. And then and Raul was kind of keen to show us because that's, uh, you know, something Raul had, you know. And, and Raul and Armando was there as well. So Armando. We learn a lot just like, hanging around with Armando Peraza, you know. Is it fair to say? I mean, it, it's that's a freaking beautiful story, and it was before you know easy access to uh, you know being able to. I'm sure you were too in the moment to actually capture any of that stuff, or any 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 audio taken or video. Yeah, we we have audio because we we used to record everything. You know, is that, we like, is that out on the public sphere? No, no, no. This no, is man, just... I, I'd love to hear some of that, man. But yeah, I'll send you some because we. Yeah, I mean, you know what, man? You know what? That, that's that's what music is about. I just wanted yeah, you yeah. to that. That's kind of reading into the more macro question of passing on your knowledge. How important is that? Is that the most important thing as an educator, as a musician? Sure, and and you know, by passing on the knowledge, you're also researching all the time. So you're actually learning all the time as well. You know, hmm. you know what happened to me with the education but, side. Is that I was part of the first intake of the jazz program at the um, at the then called Victorian College of the Arts, which is now associated with the University of Melbourne. And so that program ran kind of the first jazz program, and I was part of that first intake. And the head of the department at the time, Brian Brown, who was a legendary saxophonist here in Australia, who started the program, I was playing his band as well at the time. And... Uh, and uh, as soon as I finished kind of the program after, you know, I graduated, he wanted me to come in and, and you know, he would kind of involve me in the program. So he said, Alex, I want you to come in and, and teach a small ensemble. And I want you to take a small ensemble and teach Latin American music, Latin jazz. And I want you to kind of come in and take a percussion ensemble and teach uh, people a bit about that world, you know. So I became immersed in that. And... You know, I haven't left that sort of area either. You know, I've always been involved in that, you know. No, man. Let's, so explain why electric Latin rock never made it to Australia before, or, or maybe a couple cats did, but why is it a political thing? I mean, most importantly, like, I mean, people talk about the Woodstock being a great concert, but, you know, nobody had ever been exposed to Latin rock music before that. At like a yeah. big level, it was always yeah. Tito Puente, which burned, or yeah, Cal yeah. Vader, which in its own way was so freaking cool. There was some rock in there, but yeah. you know, Santana really uh, greased the skid. So it was more about like uh, 
do you feel like it was uh they wanted to keep that music out of the social consciousness in australia well it, santana were very popular here you know at the time i mean we're talking about 70s and 80s nobody know? can play the rhythms though no people people were trying to learn though like i remember um hearing at the time from one of the drum sort of companies here that during that time in australia they saw more or congas and i don't know what what else you know it, it was a really big thing happening yeah that man that's so classic you <laughs> did you did you um going back to chile like um i'm always fascinated with this idea of like being a voracious learner wanting to learn from the masters do you feel content have you were you ever a road dog in your life? Did you ever get in the sprinter van with like five other dudes, Timbala, yeah, yeah. whatever? Like yeah, yeah. to me, like yeah, yeah. I have a big like today. Listen, it's all good. Like everyone's got to figure out how to sing for their supper today. Like and the academy is where a lot of the inspiration is happening and going on. But I'm more yeah. of a bandstand guy, and yeah, I just yeah, wonder. Yeah. I wonder about your road dog experience. You talk about a memorable road dog experience before you settled into uh, the university. Well, the university was always there a little bit, but you know, in the early days, I, I you know, I, I joined a band when I was seventeen years old, and I, I played congas in in that band, wow. which recorded an album, which actually has been reissued now because there's a little bit of interest from Europe about this album. It was called the Savannah Silver Band, and it was very much influenced by Ossi Bisa and, and Santana in a way, oh, and we took. And we toured in a combi van for like three years, you know. So we did all that, and and, and you know, like did the did the rock circuit, and and I was very much part of that. And I became like a studio musician for about you know two decades, where I would play on people's records, and I did a lot of that, you know, a lot of that. And I really enjoyed it too. Lots of rock records, lots lots of pop records, and uh, lots of television where I would play in the in the band. And then also I became part of, I was, you know, the founding member of the Australian Art Orchestra, which is a jazz orchestra. And we toured a lot with that too. Went to India, went to Europe and did some great records in a very sort of experimental, in a way, very open sort of ensemble, large ensemble, you know. So uh, lots of different the, the Savannah, The Savannah Band, can you talk about, did you get a chance to see the world? And I guess more interestingly, like, you know, today, I, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but you know, the road dogs of today, they have to sell merchandise. They, they yeah, actually yeah. don't make any money off the gig itself. Yeah, I believe yeah. you guys got decent bread for the gigs. Was that true? Or how did you do with the bread? Oh, it depends. It, it really depends in the, in the sort of structure you're in. You know, some things are okay. Some things are still the same as they were 20 or 30 years ago. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, jazz clubs are still doing door deals and all that sort of thing, you know. So it's it's still the same, yeah. But don't I guess that's the the way I look at it with in students in this country coming out with tremendous proficiency, technicality, facility, but they don't have the opportunity to be on the bandstand with you know uh, the Jackie Byard big band or Herb yeah, Pomeroy yeah, or like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know like, like like most the amount of cats that I've interviewed who never even finished college. I know we yeah. live in a different world. I'm not trying to deny yeah, yeah, yeah. that. But yeah. how, I guess my question is, how do you encourage cats to find their own individual sound when they don't have as many opportunities to play live or go on the road and survive? 
Yeah, it's a really different sort of scene, you know. And, and you know, it's interesting you say this because I was listening to your interview with Danny Gottlieb, and he was talking about this area, right. area as well, you know. And it's really interesting because there are two aspects to this. I find one was when I was young and I was at uni and I was in the jazz program, and but I was doing a lot of work. I was playing everywhere. I was touring. I was doing things. Those opportunities are not here now. But the opportunities that are here now, which are different and they're not the opportunities we had then, are to become a really good producer, composer and put your music out and put your music out internationally and, de and develop your career, right. which is different. You know what I mean? Like my day was more about, OK, I want to freelance. I want to work with everyone, which is great. Now it's a little bit more like, okay, I'm going to, those opportunities are not as big. So I'm going to work on my project. I'm going, to, I'm going to work on my music. You know, one of the things we do in the jazz program at the university in Melbourne, where I teach is we uh, support the students learning by obviously going through the repertoire and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the program, and every year in the program, what they have to do is produce original music. So their recitals are based on original music. So for those years they're involved, they're kind of developing that kind of outlook a little bit more than in other programs where they might be doing sort of repertoire that may be connected to gigs or something like that. This is a bit more artistic, you know, in a yeah, way. Yeah, no, I, the rep, that's the, it's, the repertoire is the word I was looking for. You nailed it. How big a bag of tunes did you, before you got into the studios, how big a bag of tunes did you guys have? Would you, like, would you play, like, Afro Blue? Or, like, or like, like was it basically in the Savannah band? Like, would you... Oh, Savannah Sylvain was an original band, you know, it was just original works. Original, original work, right, so... Yeah, 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 it was just an original band from the and It was basically with that sort of flavor, a little bit rhythmical flavor, you know? But it was great because we were part of. Sorry, sorry. Uh, we were part of what in Australia at the point at the time they had was a rock circuit, which means you could you could tour around yeah. the whole country and playing these pubs that feature bands. You know what I mean? It was that sort of scene. Now all those pubs are gone. You know they all have uh, pocket machines now. You know, you right. know that's right. But in those days, it was a rock circuit. It was pretty amazing. So we were doing gigs, and we were crossing paths with like the Little River Band, or uh, you know, uh, right. uh, you know, like that kind of caliber. You know, was happening around. You know, there there were um, for a percussionist. Is there? Um, because I know. I mean, I've interviewed Candido, Ray Mantia. Warren Smith, you know, some of the guys from M-Boom, like some of the original Amazing. cats, and like a lot of work and dedication and practice went into learning those rhythms. But, you know, like, where, like, you know, a sax player or a guitar player needs to have a big bag of tunes, American Songbook, uh, Great American Songbook, you know, pop tunes, Tin Pan Alley, funk, world, like how big, how big a repertoire do you have? And, and do you think cats today need to have a bigger bag of no more tunes to get gigs. Yeah, in our program, um, they do lots of that in first and second year, lots of the American songbook, you know, repertoire. But, you know, the, the, the thing is, in Australia, there are lots of gigs in Melbourne, for example, for, for, you know, jazz clubs and little clubs where people can play. 
but often they can sort of not necessarily play those sort of repertoire anymore. You know, they kind of, it's, it's really open to a lot of original music in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quite open to that. It's not required. You know, I had as a guest here many, many years ago because I was the head of the department for a while. So I used to invite people I really liked. You know? oh, so uh, one year I invited Mark Levine, you know. And oh Mark my, had, wait, the, the, the pianist? Yeah, the pianist. Yeah, he was actually here. a great, great bone player too in the salsa band. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I got him to play on one of my records while he was here because yeah, I love his playing. Talk about it. Talk about it. Did you, had you met him before you invited him over? No, no. I just invited him over and I just said, would you like to come in as, a, as an artist in residence? And while you're here, you know, we can sort of do some things. And I got him to play. Um, I, got a, I, got a, I run a Latin jazz ensemble in the program. So I... We did a concert with him with that, and I did a gig of my with my own band in a jazz club here. And, and at the so time, he was so busy, he was so busy, yeah, yeah. And he also got to play with, um, I, I got him to record some things. But you know, one of the things he said to me, because I got him yeah. to run a workshop class where, where students in ensembles play. And I walked in while he was running the workshop class, and he said to me, Alex, I gotta ask you something in front of everyone. He said this to me. He said, the students are playing these beautiful original tunes. He said, what they do here, you know, like, and I said, yeah, we encourage them to do this. And he said, isn't that great? You know, they're so good. And I thought, wow, you know, like Mark is into this, which is great, you know, because I felt maybe Mark was more, he was going to be a little bit more like, hey, you know, they should be playing the repertoire only, you know, that sort of thing. But he wasn't at all. He was so... Um, he, he was so amazed that they were doing this sort of repertoire and that it sounded good and it was quite varied and it was so interesting, which you was feel, good. You know? The reason that you, the reason you have that point of view about your program and you've instituted is you think that cats, if they can play original music that they created and have incentive that they'll be, they'll be able to find, they'll be able to have a, a better chance of finding their own individual voice. Yeah, so it's about that, really. It's about that. It's like, you know, this was started, the philosophy of the program started with Brian Brown when he started the course in 1980. And it has stayed since then. And the idea, Keith's idea was, you know, people should develop their own sort of voice. I know that sounds a little bit sort of, you know, maybe no, a little. Sure, it's totally spot on. But it's a good thing because people are basically open to, and you know, the thing is, we're not saying, hey, it has to be this sound. It can be any sound. So if people are into hip hop or something, they can sort of develop it in that sort of way. But it's a lot more, it's a very interesting type of hip hop because they have very good harmonic skills and they got very good ripping skills. So the whole thing sounds a lot more interesting in a way. You know what I mean? They develop, even if they're developing some, some sort of, um, more popular sort of styles because of their harmonic sort of uh, background in three years of developing uh, different styles, they, they kind of develop a more interesting repertoire as well, you know? I was going to ask you about um, going back to their presentations, the, the students' presentations when they have to uh, present an original piece of music. Um, yeah. How do you, do you put them with like undergrads to perform it? Or are they doing it in isolation? How do they... Okay, there are are two ways we do this. One is in a small ensemble, which they play every week, and they have to perform in a concert setting every week. So every week they rehearse in a small ensemble. We're talking about five-piece, six-piece bands. You know, they normally play uh, jazz repertoire, but in second and third year they they start bringing on, they have to bring in uh, original music. You know, they have to do that because we push 
push them into that. You know, like you have to start doing that. And we have lots of, in the program, there's lots of classes where they can sort of work on composition skills, you know. So every week they have to do that. And then also in their own personal recitals, the whole thing is to kind of encourage them to do that as well, to kind of present an original program. You know, you, the, the thing is, you sort of say to a student, what would you do if you were invited to a, to a jazz festival and you had to perform at a concert setting? What would you play, you know? And this is the kind of setting. It's that kind of mentality of thinking, okay, if I was going to get a gig like that, it'd probably be great if I could play my own music and present that, you know, which is great. Yeah, and so that's, sure. that's what they do for a couple of years. And then they do that for their own recitals as well. And it kind of... You know, like it, it really opens people up a little bit, uh, you know, and it's a little bit scary because, you know, if you haven't got a lot of background in composition, you might feel like a bit scared to present your track to your, you know, to your to your fellow colleagues in the band. But slowly, I guess you get into, as it becomes like a normal thing that everyone has to do, it becomes like a normal occurrence. You get a bit stronger with that. And the thing is, whether you're the drummer, whether you're the singer or the keyboard player, you, everyone has to do it. So... You know, it becomes everyone's sort of band, you know, so the drummer can have that band. It's great for drummers. Like, I'm a drummer. I did that when I was in the program. I had to present my own work. So, my, you know, Brian Brown encouraged me, you know, because in first year I was playing vibes and I was doing a little bit of that as well as playing my Afro percussion stuff. But I was playing a bit of vibes and I because oh. I was... You know, a Cal Jada fan too. And I was kind of learning some stands and playing standards and, you know, just kind of learning. I mean, I wasn't great at it, but I was developing those skills in first, second year. And and Brian, who really encouraged me, would say to me, That's great, but I would, I would, I would really encourage you to start looking into your own world. What would you like to play? Can you come up with some original music? You know, can you do this? Can you do that? And he encouraged me to do that. And it, it was a great thing for me, you know. Because it really kind of made me, he opened, he opened my world a little bit, you know, a lot, I should say, you know. Well, well let me, let's just talk about the, the, the sort of mental toughness that you needed at that time when he told you to do that. How did it push you out of your comfort zone? How did it change yeah. you? How did it just change you, you know, fundamentally? Well, I mean, for me, it was a, like an eye-opener, you know, because originally I thought of myself as, you know, when I was really young, I thought of myself as a percussionist who was going to freelance and I had to be good at this, good at that, good at that. Oh, so yeah. I did do a lot of that. I learned, you know, a lot of a lot of orchestral percussion so I could get on a gig and, you know, on a TV station because I was, I was getting work like that, you know, TV or sometimes soundtracks things, you know, where you would come in as a percussionist, you know, like the sort of LA sort of, percussion world you know where you go into a session and you don't know where you're going to be playing bongos or congas or maybe a glock line you know what i mean and wow. so you have to be kind of prepared you know so you will practice lots of mallets and uh and also the rhythmic percussion so i did a lot of that and he, i became quite quite strong in that sort of area for for a few decades doing a lot of that sort of work and um the composition part so you know that was my world. But at the same time, the composition kind of took me to another area where I thought of myself most, more as, as an artist, you know, like, okay, what about right. my own thing? You know, right, I, I, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's and that's like, that the only way I know how to live. It's just like, you know, and the cats taught me that. I remember uh, one of my earliest supporters 12 years ago, and one of my early guests was. Uh, the legendary Emil Richards. Did you ever meet yeah, him? Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing, amazing. Okay, yeah. he's. You know what he said? The hardest music to play percussion in the studio was. Tell me. 
cartoon music. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Explain to the audience why that's so challenging with vibe. Well, because you're gonna get really fast lines on a xylophone or something like that. We have to make it like so scary, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's really yeah. That's really tough. Yeah, I mean, I've had in the art orchestra when I was in the Australian art orchestra. Paul Grabowski was the arranger, basically leader of the band. He would write some really hairy things to play, and you would have to kind of like you know we. You know, check quite a bit to kind of get these things down, you know, like, a, you know, crazy people sort of lines on a glockenspiel, you know. <laughs> Absolutely like... wild. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yes, it can be a bit scary, especially in the world where you're freelancing, you know, where you're just showing up to a gig and you don't know what, what what's going to happen, you know. And they go, yeah. okay, we do this, you know, and you open up these charts and it's got this, this um, you know, amazingly hard stuff to play, which you have to kind of do in a few takes. That's hard. That's hard. When you first started going, primarily in the 80s, when you started doing a lot of yeah. studio work, can you talk about a seminal, a seminal moment? I'm, a, I'm also, I mean, I was born in 1978, and uh, so, you know, I have a touch of the old soul, but I also really, what bones me out about a lot of modern recorded music, and I realize there's an expense to it, is just a lot of it's done in isolation, not yeah, everybody exactly. hitting at the same time. And I, but I know in the eighties there were still bigger budgets, and that was just there was minimal overdubbing. So I'm yeah. curious about a seminal live session in the studio because that's the music on record that I like to listen to is either live recordings or cat. Like Jader was always hitting live with everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like uh, I, I've done a bit of both, you know, uh, with the Australian Art Orchestra, everything we recorded was live, you know. Uh, so and it was like a 20 piece band and we recorded something with Indian musicians and it was all live. We recorded live, but it was hard, you know. Uh, what made, you it, what made it difficult? Oh, the music was difficult for a start. And then just to get a good performance from everyone at the same time, you know. There'll always be someone saying, oh, can we do that again? Because, you know, bar 55 was not right. You know, that sort of thing, you know. And maybe the rhythm session had it really happening, you know. <laughs> so it can be a bit like wow, that. Wow, you know? dude. <laughs> no, you know, that's what that's what Emil said, too. But he said it, and I'm going to ask Brother Alex, um, if you, because Emil would say after, like, you know, whatever TV jingle, whatever he goes, it was going to be, if it was going to be recorded, he's like, guys, I screwed up. I have to do it again. I don't want to listen to myself on record and know that I screwed up. I have to do it again. Did you yeah. have, because, you, you know, that to me would be infuriating if I knew I, if new collectively we like 90% of us crushed the take and one dude's like, I got to do it again. But yeah. have you advocated for yourself in that situation? No, you just do it again and you just support people. You know what I mean? Like, right, it's just, man. I yeah. did that. Yeah, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. You try to do your best all the time. And I've had things like that. You know, you even overdubbing, sometimes you do an overdubbing, you're playing something, you think, oh, that's not right. Stop. Can we take it again? You know, because you want to you want to be, you, you want to listen to this eventually and, and feel like, yeah, it's good. You know, I don't want to hear something bad, you know. And, uh, and recording can be quite, uh, you know, it's so... You can hear everything, so you know it's got to be good. Yeah. You, um, how do you talk to your students about? To me, imperfection is perfection. I mean, Mark Levine 
my argument in some ways over time has been that by learning, having a deep bag of tunes, not just the American songbook, just knowing tunes is going to yeah. make your make your original material much stronger. And I think, again, of Mark Levine, who spent hours making five bucks a night with Woody Shaw or Joe Henderson in Los Angeles. And then you yeah, listen yeah. to like his original stuff. And it just, I mean, it just came out really just truly who he was. So, yeah, yeah. but I know that he hit some clams that led to new vocabulary and music. And I'm not saying it was responsible for creating original material. How do you get, what is your philosophy of your students as it relates to imperfection is perfection? I'm not talking about being sloppy, but I'm talking yeah, about as a group, when you hit a clam, everybody goes in that direction because that's when new, that's when magic can occur. Yeah, I mean, we, we you know, when I recorded the ad orchestra, it was like that too. You know, we recorded things and, Maybe the whole band sped up a little bit as we played it, but there was the emotion at the time. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tempo shifting, I love it. Yeah, tempo shifting. But, yeah. you know, like, I mean, sometimes the problem with sloppy, sometimes people think sloppy is good, but, you know, there's a fine line where sloppy... <laughs> yeah, there is a line, dude. That's a good point, man. Sometimes I'm sloppy... Like someone, yeah, I mean, someone like... Uh, the short story is that the great studio guitarist David Spinoza overbent yeah. a string on right place wrong time but um Arif Mardin and Dr. John were like no it's perfect we're keeping it and it turned out to be the hit you know I was like and so yeah, like yeah. you know and I know another guy who lives in Australia I'm I'm curious if you've crossed paths with this guy because if not I definitely want to connect you to um he also hit a clam on a monkey's tune uh, last train to Clarksville that's uh, the legendary guitarist Louis Shelton. Have you guys crossed? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of him a lot. Yes, I know, I know, I know. I I've never met Louis, but I, I you know. You guys got to get together, man. Oh, I love he, to meet. He's him. a dear. I've interviewed him. He's a, he's a dear friend. I, I mean, again, I have no conception of how big Australia is. I don't know if like you know he's down. I think he's in Queensland, maybe. I don't. Know. Yeah, yeah. It's on the other side. Yeah, it's a few hours away by plane here. You know, but yeah, I, I guess. I mean, he's he's a great musician. Yes. I mean, and just, yeah. great producer and he did a lot of stuff you know tell me about um but just uh, like where you get to the point of because you can i mean percussion's a little bit different definitely but a drummer could get up in modern times and just be killing like, you know they're just killing it up there and and it's the facility is amazing but there's no it doesn't feel good so i wind up staring at the wall and i just wonder if you talk how you can talk to how do you talk to your students about feeling the music and maybe it's no. not exactly perfect, but it, it it's going to hit somebody in that primordial gut. Yeah. It's, it, you know, that's a conversation we always have, you know, especially, uh, especially I do it a lot with drummers too, you know, well, with everyone else as well, but with drummers a lot sure. because uh, I hang around with drummers like in a percussion ensemble setting and uh, we talk a lot about that, what feels good and and what is feel because I'm all for writing. I mean, I, I have a book on sight reading. <laughs> I'm all for writing. Absolutely, and yeah. That. But you can't, you know, like certain things and certain feels and all this stuff, you can't really notate properly, you know, because it's, <laughs> like, it's not about this that. You know I mean? This is yeah. what, what do you mean? Give me an example of like an Elvin Jones. Well, you know, like, when I used to listen to, uh, you know, you know, when you listen to to Afro music and you hear this feel that sounds like, I don't know if you can hear this, but let's say. 
you know, that kind of groove where it's tanka ta tanka ta tanka ta tanka ta tanka. It's kind of it's got such a flow and such an open way of 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 approaching the 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 feel and the rhythms that you cannot take that properly on 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 in music. So you have to you notate as close as you can, and then you explain that is between you know and you know I always make these sort of um, examples of. You know, even Afro-Cuban Santeria music where they play bata drums and where suddenly the drums are playing six eight, but suddenly they're playing like in four four feel, you know, like in a pulse, but it sort of changed because they kind of opened it up a little bit, but it's still yeah, but there's so much syncopation going on, yeah. Yeah, but there's still this feel thing is a very it's a very difficult area which takes a lot of work to kind of try and get to the point that you can actually play it like that and get to the point that you can play it in that sort of with that sort of um you know finesse and refinement you know <laughs> i mean do you think that part of it's also just i mean the idea of gaining because you're talking about pulse and heartbeat and like yeah. everybody has a different pulse and like so with the drummers what how do you inspire them to want to keep growing you know what, what do you what are you talking about like it's not about digging deep. Honestly, it's it's more about playing with people that you trust, you know? Playing with people and playing with people a lot, and but listening to music too, because a lot of people don't listen to a lot of music, really. And so I I my I feel I find sometimes my role is to show them lots of things and kind of say to them, well, play along to this track at home and kind of work on this, you know, work on the idea of connecting with that. And I used to do that as a kid, you know what I mean? I would play you know, records by Mongo Santa Maria and try and play along with that, you know, or kind of learn to play a Wawanko feel from Cuba by playing along to to a record from Cuba like that that has that sort of feel and try and play the different parts. And, you know, it takes a long time to kind of connect like that, you know, and for someone to kind of really show you how all that sits, you know. And some oh. people are more, you know, are lucky to be in a in a in a situation where they're playing with people all the time and they get together. You know, I remember Raul telling me that him and John Santos and a few others used to get together in San Francisco in the early 70s and just listen to records and just play all day. You know, <laughs> just develop the material like that. Dude, that and was I mean Gregorico, I mean Gregorico said that Carabell they were high school buddies and he would Carabell would bring over these these indigenous records from Cuba and they would just work on these grooves. That was years even before. Um, you want to talk about uh, Michael Carabello. I was honored to be able to do a couple interviews with him. I haven't talked to him in a hot minute, but um, like that dude was just, you know, playing the brush bar with the beatniks and the hippies on, in San Francisco. You know, he was, he was a self-taught. What did he add to that flavor of Santana in your mind? Well, look, I love Michael Caravello. And actually, I had a chance to talk to him uh, recently. And I, I said that to him. I said, you know, you inspire me to take up Congress, you know, like, because he said to me, he said to me, I, I checked your 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 bio, your CV, really impressive, you know. How did you start? How did you? And I said, because of you, you know. <laughs> and yeah. she said, and I said, well, yeah, you inspire people all around the world, you know, to play, you know. That's freaking so cool. Yeah, a lot of people started playing congas because of your playing on, you know, Black Magic Woman and all that sort of, you know, soul sacrifice. They heard you playing congas on that and they bought congas and started learning, you know. And he's saying, really? And that's, you know, even Raul, you know, I mean, Raul said to me that he saw the Santana band and he bought some congas, you know. 
So, you know, that's how he started, you know. So, uh, and then he ended up in the band. But, um, yeah, Michael was very influential, you know. And and Michael told me some great stuff, like, about the formation of Santana and how he he found Chepito and all that sort of thing. And, you know, I think Michael... Right, right, right. I really think he's, he is actually, without realizing, he actually is the one that started this whole thing because he was the one that had the idea of having Chapito in the band along with him in a rock sort of sound, you know? Well, he knew that even though the rhythm was driving him, that he could never, I mean, it is about time and place and location. And like, I remember that story he told me, I'll send you my two interviews with him because he, uh, yeah, he talked about bringing in Chapito because it just, otherwise it wouldn't have been really yeah. that. It wouldn't have been Latin, you know? Like, it wouldn't you know, have been... Yeah. Exactly. And, and what he told me, I said to him, do you realize that you are actually the one responsible for the sound? You know what I mean? Because I didn't, I didn't have that idea before that. I thought, oh, maybe maybe Chapito had their thing. But actually, no. I think Michael was the one that had the, the idea of right. having percussionists playing that sort of thing and playing those fields and connecting with the, with the rock band that he was in already anyway. You know what I mean? Right, and it was like nobody. There weren't like lead sheets up there. Like these guys are just burning, you know. And no one had done that before either, you know. Right? No, it was, in a, there, was a, there was a palpable like throw the text. I mean, there really wasn't even a textbook. They were making up the rules no. on the fly. Yeah. You know, yeah, I wanted yeah. to ask you. You use this word, and I'm, um, you know, Santeria, uh, the, yeah. the 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 spiritual spirit spiritual drums, uh, and. And that and that whole ceremonial process, and, you know, like Bill Summers, who I've done a lot of work with, you know, he'll he's like Santeria. That's a that's a Latin word. Um, you know, that's not an African word. Whereas there was so much, um, they stripped away so much of that um, that uh, of their own culture. You know, they, they took all that away. The Europeans did, and and yeah. turned and actually even that word Santeria. I mean, that's not. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that's a you know that so I wonder how far back in the I love di diaspora it's fascinating to me um I'm, I haven't done a whole lot of reading about it but I've just interviewed so many cats from that whose families made that journey or just documented stories of coming to this country and like if they were if a slave was caught with a drum he'd have his hands cut off if they were if they were speak, spoken with their native tongue they'd have their tongue cut out we're seeing much more covert kind of situation like that today, but I just wonder about how far back in the diasporatic chain do you, do you go in history? Well, in Cuba is centuries, you know what I mean? That's and in Brazil as well, you know, and in Puerto Thank Rico, you. That, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, since the slaves arrived, they, they kind of kept in those countries, they kept the, uh, the culture alive, you know, as much as they could. And they exist today in a very strong way in Cuba. And even in, in, in Peru, they have, you know, very strong sort of uh, area of that Afro in Colombia, Venezuela. But what we know around the world is, you know, a lot of people are, are aware of the bata drums and the, and the rhythms of the bata in conjunction with the regla de ocha, you know, the, the, the yeah. ceremony where they play all these and they, they you know, they're very, uh, it's a very, 
incredibly hard sort of repertoire of rhythms and improvisations and tokens that they have to play for each orisha, each god. And, you know, it's a very serious study, you know, that people do to be part of that too. Drum is incredible. You... I was in Cuba. I've been to Cuba about four times, you know, and, and yeah. while I, was, I was invited to a ceremony and I was, and I heard the drumming and I heard the singing and I saw how people were communicating, how people were, you know, embracing the culture it was incredible. That was, that is worth, that, that, that's, that's a profound, did you have like very good access to the whole thing or were you, you know, yeah, what happened to me in Cuba was uh, was uh, I had I've had some incredible experiences in Cuba. You know, one of the things that that happened the first time I I went there is I met uh, Caridad Diaz. She's a, she's a producer, amazing producer. She's worked a lot with lots of people in the states as well. She's a Grammy winning producer, Latin Grammy winning producer. She's actually the manager of Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, one of the greatest uh, Afro-Cuban rumba groups. You know, hmm. and. Um, She's also uh, involved in lots of other areas of the music industry there. And in one of the years, I had a I had a, a production of one of my productions, uh, and uh, it was nominated for an international award at the uh, at the Cuban Music. We actually won, so I was kind of like <laughs> I kind of became connected with with the scene a little bit in broadly like that. And so I kept going. I went quite a few times and recorded there with musicians. As a matter of fact, I have a I have a another two record projects that I'm working on at the moment, which yeah. are recorded with some Cuban musicians uh, there, original works that I did. Wow. And uh, and so every time I went, I was connected with drummers and and also other practitioners. And it, I was invited to a couple of uh, kind of, uh, you know, private sort of ceremonies in someone's house, you know, they were celebrating like a birthday or something like that. And I was invited, you know, so it was a very sweet and, and uh, amazing sort of uh, humbling experiences that I've had there in Cuba, yeah. Um, what is a, an area in your life that you need to push yourself out of your comfort zone in order to grow? Well, one of the areas that I really like is the um, South Indian uh, rhythmic area, which is wow. something that I developed here a little bit. Uh, I mean, it started the development with the Australian Art Orchestra, because, you know, one of the things that happened with the Australian Art Orchestra is we were invited to India, and one of the ideas was, okay, we're going to go to India. What program are we going to present there? And one of the ideas was, we're going to collaborate with an Indian master drummer, Karakudi Armani, and we're going to play his music. And we did that. So we met this um, master drummer in India, which through one of the members in the art orchestra, we had already had a connection with. We rehearsed and arranged his music for the orchestra, 20-piece orchestra. There is a record called Into the Fire. So that's part of that, that, that sort of uh, project. And so what happened was we went there and played his music. And his music is really complex with all these incredible um, South Indian Carnatic sort of rhythmic uh, rhythms. You know, it's all part of the South Indian Carnatic tradition. So he became like our mentor, our guru, our, our teacher for the next 20 years, you know. And so I learned a lot about um, just the principles of, of groupings and conical and, you know, that sort of syllable uh, rhythmic tradition, you know, which is from South India and also in North India in in that style as well, but mainly from North, South India with, with Karakudi Armani. So I've been really kind of um, 
trying to develop that more and more. And I have a track on my new record, which is kind of based on on, on those kind of rhythms, on those kind of uh, rhythmic cells, you know. And I really, I really love that, you know. I mean, you around the world, you would have heard, you know, like Shakti with John McLaughlin. I mean, John was doing that, you know, with Silver Ganesh and those people many, many, many years ago. You know? Right, right, and right. He's still right. doing it. He's still doing it because yeah, yeah, of course, of course. McLaughlin is very much interested in that sort of area as well, you know. The whole conical vocal percussion, vocal syllables of uh, Indian music, which are a different sort of rhythmic world, you know. Yeah. Can you can you talk about like, I mean, I don't know what when you went to. I just remember Dave Liebman taking his band over, month, you know, mid seventies, uh, and like Calcutta it was like bodies yeah. in the streets, like it was a, a pretty grim. Like, can you talk? Did you get over there when you say he was your guru? I mean, he had you like like doing patterns while you were doing dishes can you explain like the the cultivation of learning that those those rhythms oh you know uh, karakudi armani is like uh you know yeah. he's the miles davis of uh, south indian drumming you know he's wow. one of the wow. revered uh past, uh master drummers he just passed away very sadly just passed away wow. and um That's him, man. He, He's left a, a, an amazing legacy, you know, for all, in all around the world, too, because he inspired people all around the world. He actually recorded, one of the last years, he recorded something on one of the Paul Simon records as well. Mm. So even Paul Simon was kind of getting into those areas and those rhythms, and he wanted to kind of pursue a little bit of that. Um, but in India, yes, we we met Money, and um, we spent a lot of time with him. Basically, when we went to India, we spent a lot of time rehearsing because <laughs> the music was hard, you know. Sure, so sure. we spent a lot of time rehearsing and learning and going to restaurants with with Karakudia Mani because he was he loved food and he loved presenting Indian food to us. So we had a great sort of uh, tour. And that is one of the coolest freaking stories ever. <laughs> We also, you know, we also learn. Uh, we also saw some of the inequalities of that society as well. You know, it's very, very, very. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, that's, there's a yeah. there's a real distinct and and through the the feel of the music, and that's why there's North Indian and South Indian uh, in, uh, sounds, just because it's um, it's very they're very different places. But I think that. Um, so a different, a different instrumentation as well. I mean, Karakudi Armani was a master of the Miridangam, which is the double-headed drum, you know. And in North India, the, the tabla is a little bit more popular, you know. I mean, that's the main part of that. And in South India, they also had the Kanjira, which is a little frame drum, which I, I, I've been kind of developing for, for a number of years now. And uh, a beautiful little drum to play alongside those patterns. And the Gatam, which is the, the clay pot and... But the rhythmic uh, development with a master drummer like Karakudia Mani is just uh, ongoing, you know what I mean? Every time I saw him, he would teach me something else, you know? It's one of those relationships, you know, you always have this relationship. I, I love that, yeah, absolutely. For a long, long time, you know, and he would, even in the last few years, he would send me emails, oh, here's the new rhythmic composition to be learned, you know, and he would send this <laughs> this vocal composition, you know, which is all based on the syllables, you know, all those sort of uh, uh, patterns, you know, that uh, you, you kind of learn rhythm in that, with that sort of fashion, you know. It's beautiful. You know, um, I one final question for you. I just, I wanted you to talk about your concept of love and how you bring love to your world? Through music, through developing my music and through kind of sharing music and sharing music, you know, 
uh, whether it's original music through recordings and producing music or just by playing with people, you know, it's such a beautiful sort of world, you know. And I, you know, I've been around the world and I go to Cuba or I go to Chile or go to Argentina and I meet musicians there and I share music with them. They share music with me. And, you know, whenever I travel, I always try and record with people. So I go to Chile and I record. I go to, you know, Cuba and record. I, go, I went to Argentina and record. I went to Peru and recorded, you know, like everywhere. Uh, even in the U.S., you know, I go to the U.S. I recorded, like I've got a new album, which is, will come out next year, but I've got a couple of tracks with Mike Stern and, uh, you know, things like that that I love to share and kind of be part of, you know, and it's such a beautiful, you know, it's such a beautiful area of um, life that we have, you know. What about, um, to me, love is, is descarga, you know, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. I, and I just want you to talk about that feeling that people people hear spiritual discharge, you know, opening of the skull. They don't get it because they've been pacified by music over the last couple of decades with a lot of electronic rhythm and whatnot. Can you share a story about experiencing descarga on the bandstand? I guess with, um, oh, in lots of different settings, you know, like, for example, when... Well, what is uh, that feeling like? I, I just want people to know what that feels like. It's a hard one to pinpoint exactly. I but know, dude. You get transported. You get transported somewhere. Transported, you know? dude. Yeah. yeah, intergalactic. Intergalactic. Yeah, it's a, it's a, and I've had that feeling a lot, a lot of times playing, you know, like where suddenly but it needs it needs to be you know in the in the here now you know it needs to be in the moment you know that's right and you can get transported easily into another world where you're hearing and connecting on a deeper sort of visual thing as well you know visual and and audio and oral way you know it's it's a beautiful feeling yeah yeah it's also about and that occurs when like I don't think you've ever really had this problem, but you know, when people get out of their own way and let the information come through them so they can be conduits and that's when you can transport, you know, your ego is totally out of the picture. Yeah. 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 Do you know what I found over the years with people like Caracol di Armani or Raul Reco or people like that is that there's no, that, that's, that kind of goes out, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't stay there. The ego thing, you know, it just, 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 it just, normal people who are beautiful and they try to kind of um right right i love thank you <laughs> anybody can access it in, in some yeah, way connect in a different way we connect in a different way altogether you know yeah why why do you dig the jake feinberg show oh i've been listening to interviews i love interviews you know and i've been listening to interviews and um i've checked a lot of them so i, I you know i remember listening to david rubinson and i really enjoy that because uh, he was talking about so many areas that he oh, enjoyed. Man, yeah. Mongo to Heavy Hancock and and Cuba and this. And that. It, was so, it was so interesting to me, you know. I found it really interesting. All, yeah, yeah. Oh, beautiful, man. I, yeah, I like what you're doing. I love what you're yeah. doing. Yeah, let's stay in touch, man. I would, I mean, I'm, you know, I've been, I just haven't been around. Part of me would love to go and, uh, you know, see some uh, do you ever do any field recordings when you say recording you're talking about studio stuff are you out like ever doing any kind of like alan lomax ethnomusicology kind of stuff or no 
My my own things, just just little recordings, uh, field recordings in terms of recording people in, you know, in, in Cuban uh, at settings, you know, personal or, or you know, like little private settings. But also, right. I like recording, like on my new record, I have a lot of recordings just of people in the street, you know, just sounds. Beautiful, and, Be the ambient sound, yeah. The yeah. ambient sound. There's a lot of that on my new record with uh, even. Um, bells from churches and things like that which i love you know um just sounds yeah sounds people where can talk. people uh, hey. where, where can people find your your tunes uh well it's in the digital domain i mean they're on itunes they're on uh, my new record which is called quadrifolio it's, it's out and you know any other digital uh, sources like spotify and uh, amazon and it's all there yeah itunes alex Perto, it's an honor to connect with you man i had a ball Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, man. Stay in touch. We'll, we'll talk soon. Okay, thank you. Be cool.